So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the sixth chapter, focusing on 47 through 49, but I'm going to back up and read the 46th verse as well. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. And may the Lord bless this very poignant and important word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for that illumination. Our dear Lord, um, we know that yours are the words of life, but you also warn us of any other word other than that. If, if those are only the words that do not lead to life, then if they don't lead to life, they lead to death. So, dear Lord, I pray that these words will be taken very seriously this morning, that we will not just be hearers of your word, but doers, that we will understand where our firm foundation is. We will build upon that foundation and nothing else, and that we will indeed um, assimilate that foundation into our own lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was a kid, my father had a rock collection, and I don't know if I'm just out of touch, but I don't think people have rock collections like this anymore. Maybe you do, but it wasn't just a bunch of rocks that he kept in a box in the porch or in the bottom of his closet. No, he had actually a hand-carved wooden cabinet with glass all around it that stood in the hallway just outside of his door, and on every shelf were rocks that he had collected throughout the course of his life from all different kinds of places. And when I was a kid, um, I spent hours, rainy afternoons or during the winter, in front of that, that cabinet, taking out each one of those rocks and inspecting it. Of course, I knew every single name of every rock and what it was made of. And I used to think about, well, where did it come from? And what kind of a background did that rock have? But there were two in particular that were my favorites. One of them was what we commonly call fool's gold. And it's just pyrite. And I used to hold it because it looks exactly like gold. If you've ever seen it, more than one prospector thought that they were rich when they ran into a a stream of fool's gold. But it's really worthless. But I, I used to look at it and think, man, I wish this was gold. I wish it was real gold because if it was, we'd be rich. Well... As we talk this morning about the truth and about false teaching and false doctrines, that really is a very representative mineral. It's something that looks like gold on the outside, but actually is pretty worthless on the inside. But my favorite rock by far, and really sort of the crown of his collection, was a rather large piece of petrified wood. 
And it fascinated me. I couldn't get over it because it looked just like a normal piece of wood. In fact, if you were walking through a forest, for instance, and you know you see these trees that fall down and sit there for years, and they and they sort of begin to decompose. Well, you could have picked up a piece of that trunk, and and this piece of wood looked exactly like it, except it wasn't wood. It was rock, and it was heavy. But I'm told that the process of petrification is one that in the absence of of oxygen, mineralized water begins to slowly but surely um, petrify, fossilize that living um, uh, thing that is the wood, filling all of uh, of the places where the cells were with minerals. And pretty soon you end up with a 3D perfect model of the way that that wood was. Now you may be asking yourself, well, what does this have to do with the text that we have before us? And and you may further be asking yourself, where on earth did you come up with the title of of this sermon? Becoming a petrified uh, Christian. We don't want to be petrified Christians. I mean, that kind of sounds like you're asking us to be spiritless and lifeless and rigid and, and, and like stones. Well, That's not at all the way that I mean it. So please listen to the analogy that I'm going to create. There's a process whereby that which can be changed, can be destroyed, can be burned, can decompose. There's a process whereby that living thing becomes petrified. And by becoming petrified, it assimilates these these minerals and becomes strong and imperishable and undefiled and unfading and immovable. And that's the kind of Christians that I think Jesus is talking about in this passage. Not, Not just to build our foundations on the immovable rock, but to assimilate that so that we become strong immovable, petrified Christians. That's the way I mean it. And I hope that I'll bring that out as we go along. Now, we're at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, so our text pretty much this morning is the culmination of that sermon. So therefore, the context is the whole sermon, which of course we cannot focus on. But let me, let me sort of direct our, our thoughts to, uh, to follow the flow, I think, that Luke has been presenting us with. He has introduced us to the kingdom of God by introducing us first to the king of that kingdom. We know that the kingdom of God is very central to Luke's gospel. He has also introduced us to the foundation of the earthly manifestation of that kingdom by the apostles who were appointed at the beginning of this chapter. He then introduced us to kingdom dwellers by telling us the kind of state that they would be in by the Beatitudes that he started out this sermon with, both the positive and the negative, the weal and the woe. And then he introduced us to the the ethical standards of the kingdom, which we saw were just amazing. They were just far off of anything that we can possibly keep. And then when we added the motives of the kingdom, we found that they were unattainable except through Christ. But then in the second part of the sermon, especially in Luke, he has been pretty much telling us about the relationship between the kingdom dweller or kingdom disciple and 
the world that is around them and warning his disciples who would be taking his word forward to be very careful of false doctrines and false teachers, both to not be led astray by them and also to not become them themselves. Because if they do, they're going to be like blind guides leading the blind into a pit or disciples who do not reflect the teaching of their master, but go off like those arrogant puffed up people with logs in their eyes looking to find the speck of dirt in someone else's eye. And, and, and then he, he got into this discussion about different kinds of trees and the different kinds of fruit and different kinds of storehouses. And we've been asking ourselves questions as we've gone through this period. And I think that the flow of those questions will help us introduce the culminating or, 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 or the summarizing story that we have before us um, this morning. Um, you, you may remember he talked about there being exactly two different kinds of people in the world. There's good fruit, good trees and good and bad trees. There's good hearts and, and evil hearts. There, there's the hearts that are good because God has regenerated them. And there are the hearts that are evil because they're still under the curse of the fall. And how can you tell the difference between these two groups of people? Well, Jesus answered it. You will know them by their fruit. A good tree bears good fruit and evil tree bears evil tree evil fruit the fruit doesn't determine the nature of the tree it simply identifies the nature of the tree well that kind of led us to the second question was well okay let's get out of the analogy i know you're not talking about trees and fruit so what is the fruit that you're talking about well jesus told us at the end of verse 45 he said out of the abundance the overflow of the heart good or evil the mouth speaks. So he's talking about the words that we speak. So therefore, the good words, the good doctrine, the good message is going to come from a good heart where the evil one is going to come from an evil heart. This is how you're going to tell the difference. But then last week, we asked even another question. Well, what happens when both the good heart and the evil heart are both saying the same words? What happens when they both say, Lord, Lord's? Now, one of them means it because they're true disciples and they are obedient and they're bending the knee to the Lord. And the other one is just saying it and will, they're, they're either wolves in sheep's clothing or they're, they're self-deluded. And we'll find out at the end of the time that Jesus doesn't really know them. So how can we tell the difference when the words are the same? Well, Jesus, again, gives us the answer. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So it, it, obedience was, was, was the focus that, that was before us. It, it is obedience to the word of Christ that it makes all the difference in the world. And we are going to see that obedience to the word of Christ is the firm foundation upon which the house needs to be built. But that's going to lead us to even another question this morning, which is how do we know the words of Jesus? If the words of Jesus are that important, if the words of God are absolutely central, how do we know what the word of God is? It, it, are they subjective? 
Are these things that I hold in my heart? Are these things that come about through my emotional or sentimental understanding that I see something and I I interpret it through my own experience that this is how I know what the Word of God? Or is there something that is more tangible, something that is more solid, something that doesn't change, something that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading that is the same today as it was yesterday and will be until the end of time? Where are we going to be able to determine what the Word of God is? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, as you might imagine. Let's go back and let's take a look at the text, because that's the question we're going to answer this morning. Now, we're in the 47th verse. Um, We're going to start with that. Um, Jesus getting ready, leading into um, this parable about two builders. And and he's going to tell us, first of all, about the nature of the wise builder. Notice what he says. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. And then he's going to go in and he's going to talk about the wise builder. But there's a lot packed into this verse. So let's make sure that we see it first. Let's kind of unpack it and make sure that we know where we're headed. Notice the word everyone. That Jesus starts sit out with. Now, whenever you see that a word like that, that's an all-inclusive word. Okay, everyone is included in a word like that. But when you see a word like everyone, and then it is immediately followed by a condition, everyone who does this, well. Basically, what's happening is whatever group that is being discussed is again being divided into exactly two groups. Everyone who does this and then everyone else. Now, we've already seen Jesus do that. We've already talked about Jesus dividing all of humankind into two groups. There are the good souls, those who have been regenerated by God, God in the, in the heart, completely transformed. And then there are those who are still under the curse of the fall who have not been transformed. <clears throat> and all humanity falls into these two categories. But here, I think we're talking about a subset of that. He's not talking about pagans here. He's not talking about people who don't know Jesus or could care less about Jesus. Because in the verse before, he has said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and all that that meant? Well, at least we're talking about people who call Jesus Lord, Lord. And these are professing, and I'll quickly explain what I mean by professing. Professing Christians, people who claim to be Christians. People who at least are saying... I'm your follower because we remember that that Lord, Lord had the connotation of an intimacy, a a knowledge of that person. Now, so we're not talking about every human being, but within this particular group now, those who call the Lord, there are exactly two groups. There's the everyone, and he's going to describe them. These are the wild builder, the wise builders, and then there's everyone else. Now, in reality, he's talking about the church here. And, and you know, most of you know that when we talk about the church, sometimes we talk about the visible church, and then we talk about the invisible church. 
the visible church being the, the outward church, the, the church as it looks uh, when you look at all the people in the church and all the different denominations and all the different churches, you say, this is the church of Jesus Christ. Well, yes, it is the church, but not everyone going to the church is really the church because God sees the souls. So God knows that there are, there's the invisible church, the church within the church. It's exactly the same premise that Jesus will tell later on when he talks about the parable of the man who had the field and he sowed it with wheat and the enemy came in the middle of the night and sowed it with weeds and they said, let them grow up together. Well, that's, that's the church. You're going to have both the wheat and the tares in the church. It's the same group or the same kind of an idea that John tells us in the analogy of the, or the allegory actually, of the good shepherd where there's a sheep pen with sheep from all over the community, but only a certain number of those sheep know the master's voice. And when Jesus calls to them, those sheep separate and go with the master. That's exactly the same thing that Jesus means here when he says, everyone who does this is like this and everyone else is like that. This is the church. So it's very much focused on those who have said, Lord, Lord. But then he goes on in the rest of the verse. And he talks about the wise builder. But in doing so, what we want to notice is he sort of spells out three of the identifications of a true disciple. Now, Several weeks ago, we talked about how on earth do we know what the real fruit is. And we talked about some of the, some of the manifestations of true fruit of a redeemed heart. Well, Jesus is going to express some of those for us here. Three of them in this verse, and actually one of them in the verse that came before. So let's take a look at four elements of faith, or four identifiers of those who truly believe in the Lord. The first one is, is kind of overall, it's those who call upon the name of Jesus. Look in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Uh, okay, now we talked about that. We talked about the meaning of the word Lord, the underlying Greek word kurios, that used in this context, Jesus is not talking about a master or a polite address. He's talking about the Son of God, the divinity that is wrapped up in this Lord. And then we talked about the fact that when he said it twice, it meant I have a familiarity with that Lord. I know who you are, and I have an allegiance to you. Or at least I feign an allegiance to you. So this is the first step. Those who call Jesus Lord, Lord. But we also learned last week that this was the least reliable of these evidences. Because even a wicked heart can say Lord, Lord. Even the wolf in sheep's clothing will say Lord, Lord. Even the self-deluded one who thinks that they are doing the works of Jesus are going to find out at the end of time, as Jesus says, I never knew you. Well, that's the first evidence. Now, the second one is this. He says in the 47th verse, everyone who comes to me. 
That's an element of faith. Those who come to Jesus, those who bring their heart, their body, their soul and lay it at the feet of Jesus and pick up their cross, lose their identity and follow after him. This is the understanding of of someone who fully gives themselves to Christ, a total and complete commitment um, to follow Jesus in this way. Now, it speaks of a relationship with Jesus. It doesn't speak of simply intellectual knowledge. It speaks of having an actual relationship with the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the only way that you are going to get to heaven is by Jesus Christ, who happens to be the doorway. He says that in chapter 10 of John. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So it is a commitment. It is a love. It is a giving of oneself when we come to Jesus. So he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my voice, hears my words, hears what I say. Now, when he uses that word hear, (laughs) he doesn't mean just the tickling of the the hairs on the inside of your ears, you know, that create sound waves into your brain, then you interpret that. For a lot of you, it passes from one ear to the other, through the empty space in between. Because you're really not hearing. It means to comprehend. Sunday morning, I tell you all the time, I look out and I see some people hearing and some people listening. You have these little light bulbs above your head, and I can tell some of them are on bright, some of them are flickering, and some of them are cold, stole, they're off. You're paying attention to your phone, you're looking down, you may be looking right at me, you've developed the ability to hold your eyes open and sleep at the same time. You're not listening, you're not hearing. Jesus talks about this quite often, indeed, talking about the Jews. He said, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive. Jesus is saying, those who have true faith in me, they're, they're really listening. They're paying attention to my words. Now, when, when we teach evangelism and we talk about making a commitment for Christ, we talk about looking not just for an intellectual knowledge, but to the assent to that knowledge, to the acceptance of that knowledge as truth. When we teach the gospel, we teach it as the absolute truth of God. Well, just to know that it's the truth of God is not what's going to make the difference. It's to accept it as truth and to put your faith and your trust in that truth. Well, it's the same thing that Jesus is saying here with his words. Those who really know me, those who really follow me, are not just listening with their ears, they're understanding with their heart. They're comprehending what I'm saying. And if you comprehend what he says, then the fourth one is going to make sense. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them. Boy, there it is. That's where the rubber hits the road. Because it's not just the intellectual knowledge, it will always manifest itself in fruit of some kind. Probably the most poignant discussion of this in the New Testament is in James. Boy, he really hammers this. He makes statements like this. Be, do, excuse me, be doers of the word and not hearers only, 
deceiving yourselves. He talks about a man who looks at himself in a mirror and turns around and before he gets out of the room, he's forgotten what he looks like. He says, that's what you're like if you're not a doer of the word. And you say you have faith and you say you believe, but there's no works. There's no doing in your life. Your faith is a joke. It's not real faith because real faith is always going to manifest itself in doing. So Jesus pretty much says it straightforward. These are the things to look for. Those who call on my name, those who come to me, those who hear and understand and comprehend and accept as truth my words, and therefore recognizing where the words come from, do them. (laughs) That's the kind of person he is explaining to us about here in this first um, parable, or this first part of the parable, the wise builder, okay? So with that kind of as an extensive beginning here, let's kind of look at, at, at how he starts to introduce this in the 48th verse. You know, I'm going to show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundations on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built, Now, before I actually get into this, before I actually um, talk about the the good builder or the wise builder and the foolish builder, let me sort of set the scene because the same scene is is true in both sides of this. Um, There's basically three things I want to bring out. First of all, the raging torrent, okay, the flood, the stream that he's talking about. Most of you know that Palestine, where Israel is, is semi-arid. It butts up against some of the driest deserts in the world, just to the south of it, the Negev on the, um, the eastern side of the Jordan River. These are very dry deserts. But they have two rainy seasons each year. And to coin a phrase that's already been coined, when it rains, it pours. I mean, when it rains, it really rains. And, and what some people don't understand about the desert is that the ground becomes so baked by the sun that when the rain falls on it, there's no place for it to go. It cannot be absorbed quickly into that ground. We used to go out to Phoenix, Arizona, in the middle of the desert um, on missions trips. And you drive around Phoenix, especially in the newer neighborhoods, and you'd see like all of these big properties that had been dug down about five feet. And there's just like these holes in the ground. And, and they're, they're very large. And they were peppered all over Phoenix. And you'd say, well, what, what are those things for? And they would say it's for the monsoon season. We say monsoon season? Are you kidding? This is a desert. The rain doesn't fall here. He said, boy, no, when, when, when the rain falls, it falls, it comes, and there's no place for it to go. So unless you have these rain and retention holes in the ground, it's, it's going to start a flood. Actually, get ready, folks. That's what the county's making us do with our front yard. We're going to have to dig it down three feet so that we have a rain retention area. Well, anyway, it's by far worse in Palestine. Palestine, because the ground is so baked that when the rain comes twice a year, there's no place for it to go, so it forms what they call wadis. And a wadi is sort of a ravine or a cleft. They actually cut right through the floors, and some of them can be 15, 20 feet deep. 
Some of them very, very wide. Some of them dry up completely in between the raining times. Some of them actually have little trickles of water that are there all year long. More than likely, the location of these houses is on a wadi that has water in it, and that's the reason that they would build their houses there. But when the rainy season comes, because of the runoff, you can get a wall of water with tremendous force come flying down in a flash flood that is being uh, channeled between the deep clefts of that wadi and anything in its path is going to just simply blow off the face of the earth. Okay, that's the idea of the raging torrent. The second idea is the foundation, the firm foundation that Jesus is talking about. Now, now Luke tells us a little differently than Matthew does. Matthew just simply says that one house was built on the rock and the other house was built on the sand. Now, it seems like you've got a rock over here that the guy builds his house on. That's kind of a no-brainer. And then you have sand over here that the guy builds his house on. Well, you should expect that you're going to have troubles if you build your house on the sand. But Luke doesn't tell it that way. Luke tells it, in fact, he doesn't even use the word sand. He uses the word ground or earth. And so, therefore, we get the impression that both of these houses are in the same location, probably on the edge of a wadi. And one house is, realizes that I'm going to have to burrow down, I'm going to have to dig out the topsoil down to the firm rock that is the foundation upon which I will build my house. The other house still thinks that the ground they're building on is firm enough to form a foundation, and they don't burrow down. And that will be the difference. That's kind of the main focus here is the difference in the two foundations. Now, one last point I'd like to make, and that's about the houses. The analogy would sort of break down if the wise builder built a house like a bunker, you know, single story, four foot walls, no, no windows. Man, he's prepared for anything. And, and then the unwise builder used rickety wood two, three stories high that a good wind would blow over. Now, we get the impression, even though it's not stated, that these houses are virtually identical. To put it in more of a modern context, imagine one of these giant suburb um, developments where every house is a cookie cutter of the house next to it. In other words, imagine the same architect, the same building supply, the same um, design, and the same builder for each of these houses, which probably would have been the case because they built their houses according to standard ways of doing it. So the houses are more than likely the same. It is, again... The foundation that is different. Now, with that in mind, with those understandings of this, this scene, we can make quick work of actually looking at the two sides of it because um, they're very straightforward and, and they're easy to understand. Let me read the, um, the wise builder again. He is like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock, when the flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it was well built or it had been well built. And we just talked about that. The man took the extra time, effort, and money that it required 
to clear off the topsoil, to dig down until he reaches the bedrock, the solid rock, and that's where he builds his foundation. That house is affixed to the solid rock, and then he builds up and builds the house. Now, the unwise builder, the foolish builder, doesn't see that as being important. Jesus tells us about him in the 49th verse. But the one who hears and does not do them, now make sure you note that, that's who he's talking about, that's the unwise builder. He's defined the wise builder as the man who hears and does. The unwise builder, he might call on the name of Jesus, he might even come to the name of to Jesus, but he hears the words of Jesus and he doesn't do them. There's no action. The one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Now, one thing we want to make sure that we see here, Matthew uses the word sand. And when we think about usually the way this looks, we're thinking about the beach. And we're thinking about walking along the beach. Well, you sink down like a foot and you figure out anybody who's going to build a house on this sand kind of deserves what they get, right? Or, or, or even in a desert sense, you see all these dunes, these great dunes of the Sahara and people walking. Well, you sink down a foot every time you take a step. But that's not what Luke's talking about. He doesn't use the word sand. He uses the word ground. He uses the word for earth. And so if you've walked along that earth, you know that it's like concrete. It is solid. It's parched. It's dry. And the sun beats down upon it. And it feels like it's a solid foundation. It doesn't feel sandy at all. And so the unwise builder jumps up and down on that soil and says, okay, I don't look at this idiot next to me who's digging down there and spending all that money. I'm going to be finished with my house sitting on my front porch sipping a lemonade with a bunch of people over having a good time and you're still going to be building your foundation. There's no need for that. Of course, all he's thinking about are the good days, 350 days out of the year or something like that, where the sun shines and the sky is blue and the humidity is almost zero, Okay. He's not thinking about the two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, whatever it is, when the monsoons come. He's not building his house for that. And that's exactly what happens. You see, when that wall of water comes, it, 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 it says that it immediately, the house falls. Well, wait a minute. The houses are identical. The houses are the same. So if the one house was going to fall, regardless of where the foundation was, it would have fallen. But So it's not the house that falls, it's the foundation that falls. The entire foundation is swept away with the house on it. And that's why Jesus says that the ruin of the house was great, meaning that it's total destruction. There's nothing left. It's not like you lose a window and a couple of shingles off the roof of your house. The house is gone. Everything that has been invested is swept away. Well, obviously, Jesus is not talking about houses and bedrocks and floods. Obviously, he is using this as a spiritual metaphor, a spiritual analogy. And so what does he mean by the different parts? In other words, when he says the house will fall or the house will stand, 
What does he mean by the house? Whose house? Or, or, or what does that actually look like in reality? Well, you, you'll, you'll notice that on the one hand, he's talking about two builders. So he's talking about an individual. But that individual is representative, uh, re- representative of a group. There's the everyone, and then there's the everyone else. So on the one hand, the house is being built by an individual. And on the other hand, the house is being built by a group. And so obviously what Jesus is referring to first is the professing Christian, those who call him Lord, Lord. Each and every one of us is building, in a sense, a spiritual house. And the question that is being placed before us is, what kind of foundation have you built your house on? Or what kind of foundation are you building your house on? But the church is simply a collection of people, individuals. And so churches also build houses. I love the way Peter puts it. I mean, he really spells it. Um, Brother Michael read this earlier, or at least part, uh, parts of it. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He's speaking of Jesus. Jesus is the living stone. He is the stone that is the firm foundation. But he goes on and says, you yourselves like living stones. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not, I'm not equating us with Jesus. And, and, and I'm not being blasphemous in saying that we're little gods in and of ourselves. But what, Paul, what Peter is saying is that we are living stones being built upon the foundation that Jesus has laid. And so therefore, he's not just speaking of us individually, but us corporately as a church. He goes on and says that you are being built up as a spiritual house, that's the church, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the house has sort of a twofold meaning. Each one of us has a house that we're building, our Christian walk. And together, we build houses, particular churches. And they are so very different. And the question is, what is the firm foundation upon which you're building? And that really brings up the next question. Well, in the reality of it, what is the firm foundation? What is the foundation that Jesus is talking about? Well, he's already made it clear. He already said it. All we have to do is pay attention to what he says. Going back to the 47th verse, the one who comes to me and hears what? My words. So the foundation that Jesus is talking about are His words. That's the the rock upon which we either stand or fall. The words of Christ. Now, when Jesus came, yes, he was a man and he walked around this earth. But at the same time, he's God incarnate. He is the Logos. He's the word of God become flesh. And so, therefore, he's the living word of God. When he came, he's not just speaking words as a man. He is speaking the words of God. He is bringing God's word to us, and he's revealing it to us. He made this absolutely clear in the 17th chapter of John in his high priestly prayer. He says, for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I 
came from you and that they have believed that you sent me. Jesus represented the words that he was teaching his apostles as the very words, the revealed word of God himself. God sent me to tell you these words. He goes on in the same prayer. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Of course the world hates them because they cannot stand to be confronted with the revelation of God. And he goes on and says, sanctify them, talking about his disciples and those who will come to know him through those disciples, meaning us. Sanctify them in the truth for your word is truth. So therefore, Jesus made it absolutely certain and clear that the words that I am bringing are the words of God. And oh, by the way, Father, would you sanctify them in the truth? Petrify them in the truth of your words. Make them rock solid so they don't budge, so they can't be moved, they can't be changed and and driven to the left and the right by whatever wind comes along. Give them a solidarity in my word. Petrify them and petrify your church. Well, Jesus didn't stop with just his words. Absolutely. The foundation that we're building on, folks, is the word of Jesus Christ. But he didn't stop there. He didn't just say, okay, let's throw out everything that came before because now I'm giving you a fresh word. It's brand new. We're New Testament Christians. Get rid of the Old Testament. Who needs that? He just didn't say that. And you know what? He said in Matthew 5 famously, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. Law and the prophets refers to the entire Old Testament. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill it, to complete it, to consummate it. I'm not taking away. Now, there's certain things that I'm fulfilling that are no longer necessary, like the the cultic and the ceremonial law and the civil law, but the moral heart of God, I'm just showing you what it is. I'm I'm revealing that law to you in an even more full place. Writer of Hebrews puts it this way, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets through the Old Testament. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. These are the words of God. God speaks through Jesus and the words that he has given us are the actual words of God. Again, Peter shows that he gets it right in his second letter when he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. That's, that's like Jesus on the road to Emmaus explaining what all the Old Testament talked about as far as he's concerned. The prophetic word has been confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So bottom line, brothers and sisters, here's what Jesus means when he speaks about the firm foundation. He's talking about The prophetic, the living, the spoken, the revealed, the written, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, 
and necessary Word of God. That is the firm foundation that he says build your house upon. He's talking about scriptures. Sola scriptura. The scriptures alone are our authority. Okay? So we have the house and we have the, the meaning or the interpretation of what the, um, what the, uh, uh, the foundation is. So that leads us to a question. A difficult question. A hotly debated question. And that is simply this. How do we know what the real words of Jesus are? If we all agree, and, and we have to because Scripture tells us, if we agree that the, the wise builder, both individually and as a church or a denomination, a wise builder is going to build on the words of Jesus, how do I determine what the words of Jesus are? Are they subjective? I mean, everybody agrees with what I just said, that it's the Word of God, but is that the end all? Is, is that the end of it? Uh, uh, is it something that I can determine emotionally? Does, does, I, does it matter that I hold Jesus in my heart, that, that He speaks to me, that I see signs? I drive down the street and I see a, a billboard, or I hear a song on the radio, or I have this experiential understanding and I say, Jesus has said this to me. Is that a way that we can determine that? what the Word of God is. Well, I wish that we would learn from history. You know the old adage, those who ignore history are bound to repeat it. If we could simply pay attention to history, I think that we would have the answer to that clearly and definitively. I've been reading a biography of George Whitfield. Some of you probably don't know him. He's one of the greatest reform preachers to ever live. He was single-handedly responsible for starting what was known as the Great Awakening. Probably the, well, not probably, the greatest revival since the Reformation that was both in England and in the United States. Now, it was primarily in the United States that it started. It set the very groundwork for our founding fathers who would base the, the, the constitution of this country on um, Christian ethics, the, the reformed Christian ethics. It was in mo- probably the most powerful revival. And whenever you have a movement of the Spirit, again, it started with George Whitfield. It was picked up by the great pastors here like Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologian that this country has produced, and, and, and it spread across the colonies. All, all, all of them were involved with this. And as often happens at a time of the substantial movement of the Spirit, people were showing all kinds of emotions. I mean, in those worship services, especially when Whitfield would preach, people would fall down and weep because they were so convicted over their sinfulness. And they would come to the, to, to the Lord with, with power and glory. I mean, he was obviously working in their midst. It, 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 wasn't, it was anything but the frozen chosen, folks. It, it, it really wasn't. It was a movement of the Spirit. But you know what happens every time you have a movement of the Spirit like that? The enemy steps in and he says, well, if they can do it, I can do it too. So even though 80, 90% of the Great Awakening was a real revival that really changed hearts, there was a fringe element at that time. 
And the fringe element was one that, that fostered the emotionalism, that fostered the creation of frenetic spiritual activity, squirming on the floor, yelling and screaming, running around the room, very similar to the way of very many charismatic um, congregations act today. It, it was the fringe in those days. Sometimes it's almost considered to be the main, uh, the, the, the main line today. But nonetheless... The pastors, the false teachers, the fool's gold pastors who were utilizing this time to build their own ministries, they all had one thing in common. Now, they were spread across the colonies. They were in different states, different denominations, different churches, no telephone, no radio, no any way to communicate with each other. But they virtually all had exactly the same thing in common. They all claimed to be prophets. They all claim to be getting fresh illumination from God. God told me, and this is what you need to do because God just spoke to me. Now, half the time when that kind of a prophet says God told me, they're saying, Lord, Lord. But they're not doing what the Lord tells them to do, you see. And that's where this discernment of knowing what the fruit and what the fruit is not that needs to be in the, in the church. That's exactly what Jesus is warning his disciples against. Now, it's not just the Great Awakening, folks. Let's go back throughout all history. And every cult, every hypocrisy, every deviation from the truth, what you're going to find, if you dig deep enough, you're going to find someone who says, God told me to tell you. I mean, that's how Mormonism got started. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. And actually, that's what Roman Catholicism said. The Pope had just heard from God. He's the one who interprets and the, and the councils of the church and the traditions of the church. God is telling us something new. You need to worship Mary. Well, that's not said in the scriptures. Sola Scriptura, that's the rock upon which we build our faith. Not on the sentimental, emotional, and subjective thoughts that are in people's minds, especially the false prophets. If we would just learn that. Oh, brothers and sisters, you look around you and it's almost become mainstream. People who open the Bible and they read one verse out of it and then they close it and they say, let me tell you what God said today. Let me tell you what he told me to tell you. And you have tens of millions of professing Christians who say, I don't need the Bible. I have Jesus in my heart and he speaks to me and he tells me what to do. And so I don't need to listen to scripture. Well, if that is you, my dear friend, you are building your house on the sand. And when the storm comes, you're going to get washed away. Because you're not building on the firm foundation, which is, yes, it's Jesus. But it's not Jesus in any sense. It is not just having Jesus in your heart. It, 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 it is the foundation that Jesus himself laid. We need to understand the nature of the foundation. Paul puts it this way um, in a letter to the Corinthians. He said, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. Now, he's not talking about the foundation. He's talking about a foundation of the church. I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now, Paul makes something very clear. I'm sorry, Dr. Sproul makes something. Paul actually makes it clear. But Dr. Sproul, in his commentary, makes something very clear. He says, Paul is not talking about Jesus in any sense. He's talking not only about Jesus being the foundation of the church, but the foundation that Jesus laid. He came and for three years, he shared the words of God with his apostles. Jesus laid the foundation. In Ephesians, he puts it this way. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that Jesus laid the foundation upon which your faith and this church need to be built. It is not just Jesus in the heart. I mean, yes, you must have Jesus in the heart or you're not going to be saved. I agree. But that's not the firm foundation. The firm foundation has been laid by Jesus. It is the apostles and the prophets. The apostles being the New Testament, the prophets being the Old Testament. It is the word of God, sola scriptura. That is the foundation upon which we build the church. And you say, well, wait a minute, that was yesterday's news. Uh, that happened 2,000 years ago, and that was good for 2,000 years ago, but hey, things are different today. You know, we have different morality, we have different sexual understandings, you know, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, all of these, adultery is fine, you know. We, we have a different idea, so everything needs to be changed. We can't continue to base everything on the Word of God. Oh, really? Well, let's go to the end of time. Let's go to the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And let's see how that is built. Because God tells us in Revelation 21, on the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed. That's the Old Testament. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Doesn't change, brothers and sisters. It never will change. It is the one unchangeable, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, living hope that we have. It is in Jesus Christ, the way he is revealed to us in the word. Okay? So therefore, I think that um, hopefully we understand the centrality of the written word. That we understand that that's just the way that Jesus set it up. Do you remember what he said to his disciples when he was giving the upper room discourse? When he said that I'm going to send the paraclete, the Holy Spirit? Did he say that he's going to wipe out everything that I said and start something new? He says, no. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit came to impress upon, to reveal, and to bring to the remembrance of the words of Jesus. As he says there also, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. These are the words of God, folks. And the words of God don't change. And this is the firm foundation. It was the firm foundation of the early church. You remember what happened in Pentecost, if you're a part of our Acts study. Out of the second chapter of Acts, after 3,000 people came to know the Lord, and we have that picture of the germinal church, how did they spend their time? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. 
When the church began to grow and they had the opportunity to to do other things, to be pulled away from the ministry of the word, they say, absolutely not. We will not do it. We are not going to wait tables. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. It has been the foundation of the church since the beginning. And the reason the church is in such a mess right now is because it has ceased to be the foundation upon which we are building our churches. And we need to return to it being the absolute bedrock on which we live. So hopefully you will agree with me. I think I've made my point, or I hope I've made my point, that both your faith, my faith, and the church must be built upon the foundation of the Word of God. So what do I mean when I ask you to be a petrified Christian? What What am I actually saying? I am calling on each one of you to be a petrified Christian. Now, once again, I'm running the risk of people calling us the frozen chosen. I'm running the risk of people saying, there's no life in that church. Look, people aren't running around. They're not screaming. There's there's no hullabaloo going on. So therefore, you guys are just spiritless. (laughs) You're just, you know, stayed in your ways. That's... That's far from what I'm asking. Again, the process of petrification is a process whereby something that can be burned, that can decompose, that can turn back into the dust from which it was made, becomes rock solid so it will endure forever. There's a process of mineralization that occurs when we talk about that which is Petrified. Well, hopefully you can make the connection already. The root of petrified is the Latin word petros, which comes from the Greek word petra, which means rock, boulder, or crack. And that should be familiar to you because somebody got called the rock in the New Testament. Jesus said, after Peter made that amazing crystalline Christological confession, and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and bones, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven has revealed this to you. He goes on and says, you are Petros. You are Cephas in the Aramaic. You are Petra, and on this Petra, I will build my church and the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. So Peter's the rock. Now, there's no doubt then in that passage, Jesus is speaking to Peter, but he's not giving the keys to the kingdom of heaven to Peter. He's talking about Peter as the sort of the mouthpiece of the apostles. Paul tells us it's the apostles that are the foundation of the church and not Peter. But he, he, he calls Peter the rock. Now, let me ask you something. We've read some of the passages from Peter. Brother Will read a beautiful passage from Peter just a couple of weeks ago where Peter just makes it absolutely beautifully clear. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Boy, that is awesome. Those are some of the greatest words in Scripture. How did they come? out of Peter. Did Peter become the rock when Jesus said, Simon, I'm renaming you Cephas, 
back in John 1, at the very beginning of his ministry. Simon, uh, you're the rock. Did Peter become the rock then and there? Well, of course not. Because he was a mess. I mean, half the Gospels are about the antics of Peter sticking his foot in his mouth and, and, and being the me too, me first, getting out of the boat and sinking type of Peter. Well, was it in Matthew 16 that Peter became the rock when Jesus says, you are Peter, you are the rock, and on the rock I build my church? No, because later on he's going to actually deny that he even knows Jesus three times. So it was a process Peter was petrified over time. And it was when the Holy Spirit came upon him at Pentecost that it all came together and he became that rock-solid follower of Jesus Christ selling the words or saying the words of Jesus without change. He became an absolute, immovable, imperishable rock. He was petrified. So when I call upon you to become a petrified Christian? Do you know what I mean? I mean, build your house upon the rock, folks, but inundate yourself with that rock. Because the more you are involved with the Word of God, the more it's going to become part of you. It's like eating the bread of life or drinking the living water. The more that you are in the Word, the more that you inundate it, the more that you live it and study it and hear it and read it, the more the Word becomes a part of you, the more petrified you're going to get, the more sanctified you're going to get, the stronger you're going to get in the Lord, the more immovable you're going to be, and you're not going to find yourself washed away when the storm comes. Brothers and sisters, that's what I mean. That you would become petrified Christians by inundating yourself in the words, because if you don't, if you build your trust on anything else, And I don't care how charismatic the leader is. I don't care how convincing they are. I don't care how absolutely certain you are that God came to you and told you this or told you that. If you put your trust in those, and that's what you build on. I'll let Jesus say the words so you don't hold them against me. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great. Totally washed away. Brothers and sisters, that's not going to happen to you if you become a petrified Christian. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the glory of your words. I thank you that you've given us this word. You didn't leave us as orphans. You told us everything we needed to know. It it is sufficient. It is clear. It is authoritative. It is necessary. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is all those things, dear Lord. And I pray that as, as we grow, and just to use the analogy, as we become more and more petrified, as, as we grow and solidify in your word, that we would recognize the importance and the centrality of not only building our house on that word, but to assimilate it to where we become the living stones that Peter talked about. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.